Welcome back to another episode of the Meet Kevin Report. Today is episode number 36, Monday, February 27th. Lots to talk about today, including Elon Musk apparently laying off 200 more folks over at Twitter. Now the rounds are being made that he's even laying off people who went to sleep and posted pictures of themselves sleeping in the Twitter offices, suggesting, is anyone safe at Twitter? Of course, my take here is, hey, look, if you got laid off by Elon Musk, there's probably a reason. But then again, that sounds a little potentially empathetic towards Elon, and that can sometimes be a little unpopular these days. This year so far has been the worst for equities. Uh, well, I should say rather this last week so far has been the last for equities this year. So in other words, out of the about seven trading weeks that we've had, last week was the worst. Let's see how this week ends up for February. We've got some things to talk about, including what some of the bears are saying, including calling us potentially kamikaze, uh, as well as potentially suggesting, uh, well, Yes, the worst is yet to come. Uh, we'll go through some, uh, we'll, we'll also go through not only what the bears are saying, but we'll look at a little bit on Catalyst, what we've got going on this week. Uh, we'll look at where there's potentially a debt risk and how you might be able to position yourself as an investor. Look at what's going on with real estate rents. A comedian who's getting canceled over comments. We'll look at some of those. Uh, and uh, well, we'll also touch on Apple, which and we may as well touch on Apple right now. So Apple, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, there was a nice piece talking about Apple. And uh, keep in mind, I'm an Apple investor, big fan of Apple. I found it interesting that polls are now showing that Gen Zs are increasingly adopting iPhones as quote-unquote must-have items. Apparently, the iPhones in, for example, South Korea are jumping to about 52% usage in 18 to 29-year-olds compared to 44% uh, just a year prior. When we look at Samsung, we actually see Samsung dropping from about 45% to 44%. Worldwide, iPhones uh, in the $800 plus range make up 76% of all phones sold in 2022. That's up 11 percentage points from 2018, where Apple represented just 65% of the world's smartphone market over uh, $800. Samsung has shifted down to 17% from 27%, massively taking a seat back there. And Apple really commanding right now of the premium market globally, 77% of what are deemed premium smartphones globally. Kind of wild. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those where as an investor, obviously, I like looking at companies that have pricing power, and it always regularly makes me wonder, just anecdotally, how, how do I feel about Apple. Uh, and one of the weird things about Apple is, I also have an Android phone, and one of the weird things about Apple is, I think once you get suckered into the ecosystem, it's almost like a cult. Now, I'm a member of that cult, uh, but I'll tell you, uh, pretty much everybody at, uh, at, at our office has uh, has an iPhone. So when we group text, we're blue texters, right? But there's one person who has Android, and it's like as soon as they go into chat, everyone turns into green texters. Uh, and then like uh, links and photos and stuff don't show up as well. It's almost like Apple has engineered the, the most perfect way to kind of like 
manipulate people to 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 feel peer pressure into joining the blue text group. It's almost like like uh, I, like text message um, text message racism. And it's like oh you're you're green. We're blue. We're better. Is 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 like almost what it feels like. And it's really interesting how that that psychology has manifested uh, over and over and over again at various different groups that I've been a part of, whether those are temporary groups uh, or or uh, you know vacation groups or whatever. It's as soon as the you know you, or you go visit family. It's as soon as the one green texter comes in, everybody has to go down to the level of green. You know, in a weird way, it's like this bizarre like allegory to kind of what's going on with race tensions in America right now. Uh, so so you know maybe maybe it's time to start calling Apple racist. I, I like obviously not, but uh, it's it's pretty incredible. And it, clearly the numbers are showing that. Their pricing power is is whether it's thanks to psychology or features or whatever. For some reason, Apple continues to grow and get more and more market share uh, from investor or, or from from consumers. I mean, I remember back to the day of the uh, release of the first iPhone, uh, and then of course the App Store, because when you got the first iPhone, you actually didn't have an App Store. So back in the day, you would jailbreak your iPhone to get the uh, the, the products you want uh, or the apps you want, and you'd jailbreak your phone if they weren't uh, if you, they wouldn't let you transfer off of say AT and T or whatever. A lot of that has mostly gone by the wayside today. Uh, and even though Apple's numbers softened in uh, you know with year over year comparisons, specifically in, uh, in in Macs and wearables, seeing softening, this company prints money. I mean, just look at some of their financials here. This is their latest 10K. It's absolutely phenomenal. You go to their latest 10K, what do you have? Net sales here, $316 billion. And pretty much for every dollar of a product that they sell, they're making about uh, a 25 cents of service revenue. Imagine in the future when they continue growing this product base, if they can get services to match products, holy smokes, the amount of money this company will make will, will blow, blow our socks off. I mean, think about the margins that you have here, right? When you're looking at uh, their margins, you could see that uh, 22 bill is going to spending on services. You're looking at about a 28% cost structure for services. That means you've got profit of about 72%. So think about that way. Every time you buy uh, like a $10 product on Apple uh, for like the App Store, let's say it's a $10 app, they take 30%, that's three bucks. Their profit margin on that is about $2. So every time you buy a $10 app, Apple's like, cha-ching, thanks for the $2. It's kind of wild. Every time you pay for you know, a $20 subscription service to whatever Apple product you want, 20 bucks, whether that's iCloud or whatever it might be, 20 bucks, at a 30% cost structure means they're pocketing $14. I mean, this is pretty typical in terms of margins for software as a service business. But it's not just that. They, it, you know, a lot of software companies that sell hardware just lose money on the hardware. Look at Square. You know, they sell money on their hardware to get people into the ecosystem of Square and they try to sucker people in. So they sell their Square products as a loss leader to get people in. And when they sell their products as a loss leader, what ends up happening? Well, hopefully people get attracted to staying in that ecosystem and paying those financial services fees like credit card swipe fees or whatever uh, at, uh, at, at uh, Square. And it's the same thing as basically Matterport in, in recent quarters. They're trying to 
sell you products so that ultimately they can get you into the ecosystem of Matterport, whether that's upgrading through, you know, using the, the Matterport 3D rendering data or scanning data and using it into different software sweeps, suites with the, which they're trying to sell to you, or it's uh, quite frankly, uh, just getting people to host their 3D uh, scans on the Matterport.com website. Uh, and basically then Matterport turns into someone who's, who's just a hosting platform for you, right? Uh, so interesting, but I'll tell you, even on products over here, uh, to, uh, Apple is, let's see here, Apple's cost structure, their margins, they're taking about 36.4% in profit off every product they sell you. That's gross profit. So think about it. You want to know what the gross profit is when they sell you a $1,000 iPhone? It's about $360. That's really incredible. Really, really good. I mean, it's just it's just phenomenal. Uh, and then you might think, okay, well, how much are they actually bringing to the bottom line? Well, just based off the last quarter, you look at total net sales, 394. Of that, they brought about 99,803 to the bottom line, 394. 328, uh, that puts you at about 25% coming to the bottom line. That's so incredible. So for example, if you, uh, if, if you spend a thousand bucks on an iPhone uh, and, and then you buy stuff for your apps or whatever, all in, you spend a thousand bucks, Apple's bringing about 250 bucks of that at the bottom line. That's some big old cash flow up. Uh, you know, you go buy the, the Apple headphones or whatever for 600 bucks, 150 bucks of that's going straight to the bottom line. That's awesome. So really incredible and, and not surprising that sort of the cult of Apple is, is expanding and the Wall Street Journal is really picking up on that. It, it, I find it fascinating to see how potentially uh, uh, Android uh, wants to ultimately, uh, you know, compete with, with this, this basically mining away that Apple is doing. Now, don't get me wrong. I know there are a lot of, of, of Android fans and I think this, the phones are, quite frankly, relatively similar. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, the reason I don't use my Android phone that much is because I've got all my iCloud stuff on all my other devices, so my notes don't sync over there. But then, you know, people who use Android are usually like, oh, but Kevin, you know, I like the Android because I have my Google Drive and my Gmail on the phone. And I'm like, yeah, I have that too. You know, it's, it's like I have iCloud built in and Gmail built into the iPhone. But on my Google Pixel, I don't have iCloud. I have Gmail and my Google Drive and all, all my, my G Suite products. But I'm like, I also have G Suite on the Apple and the iCloud. So it, it, it's really impressive what they've done. And to some extent, the, the Microsoft cloud service, it just isn't at that same level in, in, anecdotally where the Apple cloud service is. And I think that's really where, uh, you know, if you wanted to like sync with Bing or whatever, as opposed, uh, or, or use your, your, your Bing storage, it's almost like you're seeing a little bit more of a, of a legacy industry approach, uh, prefer uh, the, uh, the the Microsoft storage over uh, Google Drive or Apple. And again, if you're using Google, you could you could basically be device agnostic. You don't have to use the Google device to use the Google products. Whereas with Apple, you have to use the Apple uh, products to to use the the Apple services, the storage or Pages or or whatever. Uh, and and you know some of it is is preference, but. Clearly, with with how they're growing, even in, in sort of this this environment, uh, I mean, look, that's the other thing I think we we forget is this is you know Q4 of this year was widely expected to be way less euphoric than obviously Q4 of 2021, right? Yet what does Apple do? Apple somehow, despite all the craziness, still managed to in, manages to increase product sales by 6.4 percent. 
Now, of course, yes, there was high inflation. Some of the you know margins uh, got hit, but still, on a nominal basis, services grew about 14.7 percent. Still spending more money, at least on services, and even if inflation is roughly matched for products, it's incredible that it's not more negative on a real basis or inflation-adjusted basis than uh, than it might otherwise be. So really, I mean, the company's just phenomenal. Uh, I mean, they're, they're hitting it out of the park. Now, if you look at sort of a forward valuation on Apple, it's no surprise that they've recovered the way they have. But let's look at a forward valuation. Uh, sorry, if I said Tesla, I meant Apple. Let's look at forward valuation on Apple and just see what Wall Street is pricing in. So right now we're looking at about six bucks expected uh, through about September of 2023. So we take the current price about 146.71, divide that by six bucks. You're trading for about 24.4 times earnings. Now growth is expected to be flat this year. So you potentially, if you wanna do a peg ratio analysis, you potentially have to look through this year. But after that, EPS is expected to grow at an average of 10%, 2024, five, six, seven. <clears throat> now, you go ahead and pop up your, uh, your, your PE ratio, which we just calculated as a 24, well, yeah, 24.4. Divide 24.4, divided by 10, you're looking at trading for about a 2.4 times peg ratio. So, <clears throat> a little bit rich. I think there's a lot of safety play going into Apple, right? When you've got Tesla trading closer to like a 1.2, uh, you've got companies like AMD trading closer to a one. Uh, Enphase still sitting closer to a two along with NVIDIA. Apple's up there. Apple's kind of trading like a TSM, a little rich on that peg ratio. But that might be because these companies are just absolutely killing it. Uh, complete crushing. So really impressive. I mean, you got to just say, you know, hat, hats up here for, for Apple. Ad revenue on Apple glasses. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how much, uh, uh, how, how big uh, of the current... It'd be very interesting to see how big of the current income from Apple is advertising relative to uh, basically just taking 30% on, uh, you know, let's say uh, App Store uh, uh, sales or, or otherwise. That would be very interesting uh, because, you know, iCloud services or whatever. I don't, I wouldn't imagine it's actually too ridiculously impressive, uh, the advertising on, so like iAds or whatever right now. Mostly because I think people are more inclined when you see ads on an app to just pay for the app. At least, you know, the apps that I use on, on the phone, most of them have in-app purchases and you're not really getting fed iAds. Uh, and we've seen the challenges of advertising on like Netflix or, or whatever, uh, which, which traditionally hasn't been very popular. We know Roku, uh, at least over the last couple quarters, right? We know advertising with ad-supported streaming on Netflix is relatively new, but they're saying the take rate is relatively low on it at Netflix. On top of that, uh, you know, you've got Roku who tries to advertise on smart TVs and they're losing money hand over fist. It's crazy. If you open up, if you open up an iPhone, 40% of the parts will be Samsung. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is totally and potentially true for now. You could open it up and see a lot of parts from Qualcomm as well. And what's remarkable is the designing that Apple is starting to push into chips and, and, and really not just neural net style chips or GPUs or CPU, basically the, the M1 chips or all of these together, right? You got your uh, CPU, your GPUs, your neural net uh, chips, uh, right? Well, what's remarkable is it's not just those chips that they're looking to replace. It's even just the 5G antennas 
that Apple is trying to design themselves to replace the service that Qualcomm provides. It's really incredible. Someone here writes, the Outlook Mail app is on iPhone is great for Gmail, etc. See, that's wild. Uh, it's, it's so interesting to me because somehow they've really managed to, to keep people in this system so tightly uh, uh, that everybody else can run their business on an Apple, but you can't take the Apple specific services and run them on any other phone. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. So uh, those are some thoughts that I have on Apple. Pretty impressive, I'd have to say. Now, uh, let's see here. What I'd like to do is give a little bit of a house hack update. Give me one second here. Okay. Okay, so, yeah, let's do that here. Okay, so uh, Elijah writes, uh, let's and go. I'm excited to see when House Hack buys and where it buys. So I have a House Hack update for you, and it's, uh, I'm not going to go into every single detail, but it's going to be a little bit of a, of a shocker, I think. Uh, our goal is not... Uh, has, has, has been revised. Let's be clear about that. It's been revised uh, from, from what our initial plans were, which was uh, basically buy amazing properties, hodl, and, and do what we can to basically expand our ownership of real estate in the style of, let's say, an invitation homes, a Blackstone, uh, you name it. It's something in that direction. What we've actually found is that is uh, that is the low-hanging fruit. That is potentially the, I, I mean, I hate to say it, and this is not to be offensive to American Homes for Rent or Invitation Homes or whatever. That's the bare minimum that we're expecting for House Hack is, is to basically operate like that, which those companies trade for 2 to 2.4 times book, depending on, on where the stock market is at the time. Uh, you know, House Hack right now is open for investors who are accredited at a, at a one-to-one ratio, uh, which is basically a massive discount to what, what you would normally expect for a, uh, a, a normal sort of real estate holding company. But uh, again, we realized that that is the low-hanging fruit. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of constantly revising. Some people like to say flip-flopping. I like to say revising and optimizing towards the most profitable structure. I am a massive fan of minimal risk and massive cash flow at businesses. Cash flow. I want more cash flow. And ultimately, more cash flow is really, really good for, uh, for not only the company, but for employees and investors, because more cash flow means more company buybacks, more dividends. Warren Buffett just had a phenomenal piece on how great buybacks are for, for companies, and anybody deriding buybacks is is uh, you know either economically illiterate or basically aligned with a political agenda. And so what we've done is we've revised uh, substantially the the upper tier goal of what House Hack could achieve. And uh, I'll, I'll give a few samples, but basically it starts with the idea of how can you become the essentially Robin Hood of real estate uh, and how, or, or and put another way, the vanguard of real estate, right? Think of, uh, think of vanguard as low cost uh, index fund investing of your choice. Think of Robin Hood as uh, commission free investing into stocks. How can we 
create that sort of company with house hack. And that starts by buying real estate, but it doesn't have to have to end at buying real estate. So what we find found is really us shopping for real estate is just phase one of, of essentially our own, you know, dare I borrow the term from Elon, uh, the initial master plan of uh, quote unquote of, of house hack, which if the initial plan is, hey, great, you know, we raise money one-to-one, -one, uh, worst case scenario, we're valued like uh, like the competitors at a, at a two, two and a half to one ratio. Wow, that's a two X, one and a half X, right? That, that's our, our thesis. Now, I wanna be very clear about that. Uh, this is a startup, this video is not a solicitation. You invest in any startup, you could lose all your money, right? Things could go wrong. You gotta read solicitations before you invest. Don't invest blindly, okay? All, all that, we know that, okay? I'm just giving sort of my opinion, my, my thesis right now of, of, of our vision. So my vision is that's sort of like, again, bare minimum, that's like the low hanging fruit. Like stuff would have to go really wrong to, to fail at that, uh, to, to basically fail at competing with like the invitation homes or whatever, because we can buy amazing properties in great areas, manage them relatively easily. And just the equity we build alone should, should be very, very valuable. But we're realizing the systems that we have and the tools that we have or, or the software stack that we're building, whether that's in property management, uh, renovation, uh, deal finding, or, or even the referral network for deal finding that we're building out, these, these, the, the software stack alone, not something that you wanna become reliant on, right? You don't wanna pull off an open door where you blindly hire people to buy stuff off your software stack, and then you, in like an idiotic way, basically knock on the door of bankruptcy. But then again, that's because the risk management policies at open door are trash. You know, I was just in, uh, in Saint, where was I? I was in Colorado Springs. I go through an open door listing, and what do I find? I find dead rats, find like, let me put it this way. Out, out of the hundreds of homes that I've just been in in the last few months, Every single open door listing that I've been in, which is probably about 10, every single one of them is trashy. They're either dead bugs, it's been on the market for six day, uh, six months, that is, it's overpriced. I've seen dead rats in open door listings. I'm not making this stuff up, it's all on video. Uh, you, you look and the smoke detectors are beeping or they're thrown on the floor, stuff's broken. Uh, the, the upgrades are cheesy and crappy and, and, and done. It's, it's almost like, the executives are sitting in their pedestal in some office somewhere at Open Door, and 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 they're not actually getting on the ground and looking at their properties. Now, that's not to bag on Open Door, even though that's exactly what, really what it is. It's it's to send a message to the CEOs of Open Door that hey, y'all are failing. Maybe what y'all ought to do is wake up a little bit and or go over to view your actual properties and see why they're not selling. See why the book value of your properties is continuously getting written down, and maybe then you'll realize why they're not selling. Right? That's that's very important. So, uh, how does how does house hack go from potentially the the bare minimum to using our software stack and and of course just just hard work and efforts to creating. Uh, potentially a, a uh, you know, 10 plus billion dollar company, right? Uh, I mean, uh, that that's that's the long run goal. How, how do we turn what we can do at Househack into something that is an order of a magnitude better than uh, what a Fundrise could provide or Roofstock could provide? How can we provide something that's in a magnitude uh, similar to what Robinhood did for real estate or for for stocks, and what Vanguard did for ETFs. How can we do that for real estate and uh, without 
without you know getting too much into the weeds, uh, because uh, in the next about 60 days, we'll be releasing exactly that plan with uh, sort of an outline of exactly uh, what our plans are and sort of goal dates and such. But um, uh, that's after we get our, our uh, sort of green light from the SEC on raising money from non-accredited investors. Right now, you have to be accredited. We sort of have deadlines at the end of each month for investing that give you more warrants, which are like call options on the company, but not technically call options. Anyway, uh, like today's February 27th. For example, one deadline expires tomorrow uh, for, for House Hack. But either way, the, the goal is how do we go from, from basic idea, which, which we already have clear, uh, clearly established, that's, that's easy mode, to really actually disrupting the real estate space in a way that nobody has before. And we think we found the answer to that. So we're extremely excited about what we can do with Househack. And the beauty is to answer the question of, oh, where's Househack going to buy or what's Househack going to buy? The answer is probably in the long term uh, going to be everything and everywhere. Uh, now we'll, we'll start slowly. Uh, but the, the long-term goal is generating cash flow, not necessarily just, uh, you know, buy in one area and sit there, hold and twiddle our thumbs. We, we think we've discovered a way to generate massive cash flow, uh, it, which, which would enable us to basically create the, the Robin Hood of real estate or the, the Vanguard, you know, ETFs of real estate. And, uh, and, and that, that vision will actually be agnostic of where or what we buy. We could buy anywhere in the United States. We could buy, uh, you know, in, in, we'd have to have a subsidiary do it because of the new rules in Canada, but we could buy in Canada. We could buy commercial real estate. We could buy multifamily real estate. It, does, it really, the product doesn't matter anymore. It, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Robinhood or Vanguard don't tell you what to invest in. They give you the choice of what to invest in. And uh, we, we, have, uh, we have a way to do exactly that. So that's really exciting because it means... You know, if, if you want to uh, invest in just multifamily, there's an opportunity to do that with us. If you want to invest in just high cash flow single family, there's a way to do that. So really, uh, we, we're, we're rotating from this idea of, okay, House Hack's just going to buy, you know, $150 million worth of homes, uh, and, and then we'll sit there and twiddle our thumbs. F that. That's like, uh, to, be, to be frank, that's like bare minimum, <laughs> right? Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's the fallback plan, let's put it that way. Uh, the, the grandiose visions we have are, are, are much stronger. And, you know, I, I, I'm not here to suggest that, uh, oh, uh, you know, it's a guarantee. Oh, that's it. We're going to IPO as a Robin Hood of real estate. There's a lot of work to do, and it's going to be very, very difficult. It's going to require scaling uh, uh, with, with a, a lot of, of uh, smart people and hardworking people. And, and uh, the, next, the next decade, eh, hopefully less, maybe seven years w w w of, of scaling will be quite challenging. And uh, it'll be fun because we'll we'll be documenting all of that, uh, almost all of that, on uh, on YouTube here. But uh, yeah, so there's a sort of a long answer to where will House Hack be buying. <laughs> it's uh, it's actually really really uh, exciting, and uh, we can't wait. So, mm -hmm. all right. So that gives us a little bit of an update here. Let's uh, let's keep going here. Um, let's see here. I think we might have a little bit of a technical glitch based on some of the commentary here. Uh, stand by. Uh, did, did, did somebody mention the stream froze there? Did, did the stream freeze for anybody else? Do we have a little issue there? I think everything should be okay. It seems like it's okay on my end, but we're just going to take about 20 seconds to do a quick little confirmation here, and then we'll we'll keep going. 
Standby. Well, it seems like uh, everything is okay on this end. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> Happens when you mention Robin Hood and Vanguard in the same sentence. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, all of YouTube is, is having an issue, not just, okay, it looks like, it looks like YouTube in general had an issue. Okay, well, there's nothing I could do about that then. So, uh, so we'll just keep going then. Okay, so, uh, that gives us some, uh, some coverage here. Uh, it looks like YouTube had a little, a little bit of a, maybe a little server reboot there. No problem, that happens. To, um, uh, it's worth uh, taking a very quick look at what's going on with uh, break-evens and bonds. Right now, we're sitting at um, bonds uh, up again about three basis points. Ten-year treasury knocking on the door of 3.98. Boy, we start crossing 4% again. Real estate is going to hurt. It is going to be very painful. So that's not uh, that's not very good uh, for, for real estate uh, and that's important to pay attention to because the beauty is uh, with Househack, for example, we want to buy uh, once we have confirmation that the pain is behind us uh, and uh, that'll give us plenty of time to build out what we're building. And so we're very, very excited. All right. Uh, so five-year break-even sitting at about a 2.57 right now, slightly down from the peak that we've seen last week, but certainly up, matching some of the highs that we've seen in, uh, in October. If we look at financial conditions, let's see here, financial conditions, again, the 10-year treasury right now sitting at 3.98 roughly, rounding up a tiny little bit here. So Goldman financial conditions should be slightly elevated. And yes, they absolutely are elevated. They are at the highest point uh, of tightness that we have seen since the beginning of the year, sitting around Jan 6. We did have a lull in about the second week of December and we have now exceeded that lull as well as the lull we had towards the end of uh, January. So Bloomberg said a bearish truck is coming. You agree? <laughs> Almost all of the institutions are bearish right now because they've they've been stuck off sides on, on some of the rallies uh, that we've seen over the last seven weeks, although last week was a little bit more of a, of a, of a, of a correction of, of some of that, uh, given that we saw the, um, the reversal in uh, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of stocks, especially profitless tech, uh, and also the Dow uh, falling to some of its uh, lowest levels uh, this year. So uh, let's see here. What shall we talk about next? Uh, okay, we could do. Oh, we got a lot to talk about. Okay, well I better I better hurry up. Okay, let's start quickly with a catalyst. What's on the catalyst calendar uh, for the week? And then after we hit catalyst, we've got a lot to cover and a limited set of types, so let's make it efficient. Okay, so uh, Catalyst, 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 Catalyst. Oh boy, there's a lot. Okay, one sec. Let's talk Catalyst. The first Catalyst that we've got to talk about is the set of earnings coming up this week, and then we're going to look at economic Catalyst as well as some projections for those economic Catalysts. So, first, oh boy, we got a lot of Catalysts coming up, even what's coming up over the next couple of weeks here. It's gonna be a big deal. Uh, obviously, first things first, we've got today, Monday, Zoom, FUBU TV, Lee Auto. Be insightful, but maybe not as useful for the broader market. We'll get some more broader market data from the earnings of Target, Norwegian, AutoZone, Advanced Auto Parts, AMC, Rivian, Burst Solar, Hewlett Packard, and Cracker Barrel. Now, one of the things that I'm looking for 
at companies like AutoZone, Target, and Cracker Barrel. Uh, even AMC is, I want to hear that the availability of labor is expanding. That would be consistent with the disinflationary argument that in the long term, we are not expecting to get Paul Volcker. If we hear that there are still elevated employment costs and that those costs are not just staying elevated, but they are indeed rising, then we've got problems. And AutoZone, Advanced Auto Parts, AMC, Target, these earnings on Tuesday are going to give us a lot of insight. Now, do remember that we have a fight going on between APE shareholders and AMC. Remember, AMC basically, and they're being sued for this, they basically worked around the shareholder dilution limits by creating the APE shares and doing this reverse split. This is what I warned of many months ago when the APE shares first came out for AMC, that these APE shares were likely just a big scam to basically dilute shareholders further. Uh, a lot of people in the AMC community got very upset at me, but the people who actually listen to me are very, very happy uh, that they listened because uh, as, as I predicted when I sold my APE shares at $8, I expected they would go under a dollar uh, and that they have. Now they've recently risen slightly above a dollar because there's that hope that maybe they'll be able to merge with AMC shares, which will just lower the valuation for AMC even further, especially since their plan to wipe out their debt so far has barely come to fruition. They waited way too long to dump on poor retail shareholders. Uh, and unfortunately they raised, uh, I believe as of last count, only about $150 million, which is great, but it's a far cry from the billions of dollars they need to actually wipe out their debt. Uh, so they should, and their average sale, by the way, was somewhere, last I checked, somewhere around two bucks, maybe 220 for APE uh, shares dumped on retail investors. Big fail. They should have been dumping right away when they launched this sucker at eight bucks, seven bucks, six dollars, five dollars. I mean, I know hindsight is 2020, but I also said that, and I'm not saying AMC should listen to me, but day one, I'm like, best thing AMC could do right now is just dump on retail at eight bucks. And uh, they, they waited quite a while, and, and now they're just, you know, worst case scenario. Didn't pay off much of the debt, and you're getting sued. Uh, to the Nats Heine because uh, you basically are, are circumventing the limits shareholders have placed on your ability to dilute and pay off your debt uh, via, uh, you know, and, and APE is your workaround, but that's not what shareholders originally wanted. So it's going to be really interesting. Uh, but anyway, that's the little rant there on AMC. On uh, Norwegian, obviously, we expect travel demand to continue to remain very, very strong. So I'm not too terribly interested uh, in expecting any kind of weirdness from Norwegian. Again, more interested in sort of that staple slash consumer discretionary view that we're going to get from Target, AutoZone, Advanced Auto Parts. Usually in recessionary environments, ironically, auto parts sales go down because they make a lot of money off discretionary purchases. Those will be like radar detectors. Those are great, by the way, get one. Uh, you know, hubcaps, whatever, like fancy extra things that, that you can put, out, put in your car. Uh, sound systems, whatever. Upgrades usually, mufflers, whatever. Uh, Rivian, we'll see how much more money they're losing for cars they're manufacturing. I will say I was in a Rivian, absolutely gorgeous, just like the Lucid that I bought, absolutely gorgeous. Technolo uh, Technology-wise, don't hold a candle whatsoever to Tesla. And that's not just being a Tesla bull, that's, that's somewhat, that's trying to understand what's the competition up to, and it's beauty over tech. And unfortunately, I don't think that's where the younger generations want to be. Don't get me wrong. The older generations still want that impression of, you know, 30, 50, 40, 60 years of reliability from brands like Toyota and, and you know, the old dealership model, the old service model. Kind of, I hate to say it, 
older generations a little bit more likely to be stuck in that past. Whereas newer generations, much more likely to say, I don't care about the damn stitching. I want the technology. It's interesting, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see how much more m uh, money Rivian is losing. First Solar might give us a little bit more insight into the housing market. Remember, uh, Q over Q uh, forecasts for end phase were flat. So I wouldn't be super optimistic on a first Solar doing super well uh, in, in Q1 here. Although remember, end phase beat uh, expectations. They ran in the aftermarket and it wasn't until the next morning that they actually collapsed. Uh, and uh, I do still think there's a risk of a retracement to about 160 for Enphase. In, in my opinion, that ends up being sort of a load the boat time, sort of back up the truck and, and open the gate and, and throw in as many shares as you can get. Hashtag not financial advice. Even though I'm a personal financial advisor, I don't know who you are and I don't know what your personal finances are. So that should be obvious. Should go without saying, but whatever. Wednesday, we have the Tesla Investor Day. Uh, we will. Uh, we also just learned that Tesla's uh, German plant in uh, Giga Berlin basically has hit an output of 4,000 cars per week per Reuters. Neo reports Wednesday, the dollar store, Lowe's, Kohl's, Snowflake, Salesforce, Box, Plug, American Eagle. If I was going to be bullish on anything during this next week, it would probably be the SaaS companies. That'd be your Salesforce and your Snowflake, unless that's already been priced in, mostly because most of the SaaS and cybersecurity companies we expected would be doing terribly. And that is I, like Wall Street in general expected would be doing terribly. Yet they've all been just crushing expectations and then they run afterwards. Now be careful, even if they run afterwards, they could end up pulling an Airbnb on you where they run afterwards and then they just sell off right afterwards. That's been something we have been seeing. So you get a run right after earnings, you get maybe a two or three day run, and then you start getting the sell down as the momentum fades. So beware of that, that is possible as well. Uh, also beware that uh, this week our investor day flash sale will be expiring. So take advantage of the flash sale on any of the programs on building your wealth that includes the Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing Course, so you could learn how to become a millionaire with starting with zero in real estate. That's what I did before I ever touched YouTube, becoming a millionaire through uh, uh, through through uh, real estate investing, stocks and psychology of money, learn how to hustle the way I do, become efficient and optimize your routines as an employee or an individual entrepreneur through the Elite Hustlers course, learn about the tax tricks and savings and strategies I teach as well uh, throughout any of these programs on building your wealth. So check those out, link down below and take advantage of that flash sale. So what do we have as well? So that's uh, so that's Wednesday, Box, Plug, American Eagle. These will be interesting. Of course, obviously we're gonna look at things probably like margin compression at the dollar store, Lowe's, Kohl's, uh, American Eagle. Most of these are expecting to have pretty cautious forecasts for 2023. They're expecting a fall in Q4 year over year. Same thing for Macy's on Thursday. Thursday, we're going to get uh, Best Buy, Macy's, Kroger, Costco, Chargepoint, Dell, Nordstrom, C3AI. In a weird way, would be most optimistic about C3AI because uh, and I don't really like the company, uh, so I, I, I wouldn't. I probably am not going to play that. Uh, although I will be playing some trades probably today. I'm expecting to play some trades. So stay tuned if you're in the stocks and psychology of money group. I expect to do uh, some sweet, sweet yield farming on some uh, some uh, uh, some opportunities I see. So if you want to get all those buy sell alerts, check out that stocks and psych course. <clears throat> but what do we have here? We've got uh, Kroger, Costco, the staples uh, uh, spaces, in my opinion, restaurants, Costco, grocery stores. These are probably going to be, in my opinion, where we have the most margin pressures and the smallest PP smallest amount of pricing power. Uh, so I'm probably not too optimistic over here on these earnings, though they'll tell. I mean, Costco has been an incredible stock during the pandemic. 
It's retraced a little bit since that pandemic, but it's going to be interesting to see if staples are starting to show any of that weakness. So uh, then let's look at economic data. Obviously, we know March 10th, we're going to get the Bureau of Labor Statistics labor report. It's not going to be this Friday, even though this Friday is the first Friday of the month. We're not going to be getting the February uh, labor report until March 10th. We're going to get CPI on March 14th, 5.30 a.m. I'll obviously be covering that live. I'll cover the labor report live as well. In fact, much like I'm streaming right now, I will, uh, I will be covering those. Uh, March 22nd, FOMC will be covering that, obviously, as well. Then let's go take a peek at some of the other economic data coming out this week. So today we're going to be getting uh, some data here shortly on uh, durable good orders and pending home sales. Pending home sales surveys looking at a month over month gain of about 1% for the survey. Uh, that is going to be down from 2.5% prior. Wouldn't be surprised if we missed on that, mostly because interest rates have really been popping up. Yes, there was some euphoria and excitement towards the end of December, early January for real estate. A lot of the builders are talking that up. A lot of realtors are saying, oh, yay, that's it. We must have hit the bottom. Yeah, well, we'll see, given that uh, mortgage rates had fallen under 6%. And guess what? Now they're solidly back over 7% as yields on a day-by-day -day basis continue to rise. I expect that pain to happen for at least the next uh, three months in the real estate sector. So we'll see, though. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll start having our, some more real estate data tomorrow as well. S&P CoreLogic 20 a city month-over-month -month data. We expect to see a negative 0.4% from the prior of 0.54%. Retail inventories will come out tomorrow. Uh, we'll expect about a 0.2% month-over-month growth. Growth. We've really actually seen inventory stabilize, which hurts a little bit the uh, the narrative that we're expecting massive disinflation. Unfortunately, because uh, you know higher inventories sort of beget more disinflation. But inventories have really been stabilizing pretty quickly. Supply chains have been stabilizing as well, though, which hopefully just maybe doesn't create deflation, but does does keep things stable. That's the goal. We do get ISM data. That's the Institute for Supply Side Management. We'll get data on prices paid this week on March first. That's Wednesday. Again, same day as that flash sale uh, uh, for for the uh, Tesla Investor Day, although that flash sale has already begun today. You have uh, manufacturing data from uh, the Institute for Supply Chain Management coming out that day as well. The projection for prices paid is 46.5 versus 44.5. Anything under 50 is a sign of contraction in prices. So it's actually good. If we could just hit survey here, it's actually not that terrible. Factory orders on the 6th, which is actually already next week. We will get ISM services prices paid on Friday, though. No forecast or survey yet on that. Uh, and so we'll also see ISM employment. So we've got some catalysts for the week. Most of the catalysts this week are going to be earnings. And the big catalysts don't actually come until March 10, 14, 22. So mark your calendar for those. And of course, in the days prior to those, I'll be uh, making sure to release what the surveyed expectations are for those reports. So always check back regularly uh, for the uh, the catalyst videos so you can get the latest survey data, especially if you're looking to trade on some of that. I'd love to provide you some of the data going into some of the uh, the expectations that we have. So uh, we'll see. Uh, super exciting. Somebody here, uh, Mr. Futbucker, says uh, a meta uh, had the same experience after earnings as well. Maybe that sort of rise and then fall. Uh, unpopular opinion, 60-40 uh, portfolio is back. Inverse 60-40, though, 60% bonds, 40% equities. Well, that's an idea. 
this time is different. It's counterintuitive. Stock market has always gone up. Therefore, the statement should be thrown out of the window entirely. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, interesting commentary here. All right. So uh, that is our catalyst setup, and uh, we'll see. So check out those programs linked down below on building your wealth. Uh, and uh, let's move on. So let's see what we got now. Now we've got to cover. Let's see here. Uh, oh yeah, we got we got to, we got to look at the bear case. We've also got uh, some talk about a comedian who's now getting canceled. Uh, now I'd like to actually play some parts of that, but for a moment I want to hop on over here and listen to Squawk Box just for a moment to catch up to see what the suits are saying. Long-term thesis: We have to see top line and bottom line growth. So, once, uh, and we concluded with Peter Krauss, and I've heard it so many times over the years, oh, it's a stock picker's market, it's a market of stocks, not a stock market. I've heard that again and again, but I guess it's true. Uh, if you have, uh, if you can identify tech companies that are going to grow their earnings regardless, or disirregardless, should I use irregardless? Use disirregardless, three of them. So disregardless of the economy, if you can find it. does not make a <laughs> Anyway, regardless, should you buy, should you focus on fundamentals of the individual tech? It's not a monolith. You can't just buy tech. You got to buy stocks that are companies that are going to succeed. That's right. I'd probably, if I could build a portfolio that had all sectors represented, I clearly would be underweight in the tech sector. And the tech sector in the S&P is about 25%, so that's a pretty big slug. But you're absolutely right, Joe. I think there are some companies that have a short, intermediate, long-term investment thesis that isn't about just cutting costs. I see some interesting opportunities in automobile and industrial semiconductors, a couple of cybersecurity names, and even some uh, data networking companies, and some of them that are actually old school that I'm interested in right here, right now. Did you, you know, I don't know where they find these people from. It, it's fine. It's fine. But boy, the, the traditional narratives that, that we get uh, on CNBC sometimes, I, I, I just, I can't help sometimes think, uh, and look, some people are great, but I can't sometimes help but think people have to go on the shows and, and just say something uh, wild. Uh, it, it just to, to, to get, get more views, right? so basically to get, to get clipped. And, and I get it. But I, 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 like, I think one of the ones that really kills me is, who was it? It was uh, last year. For most of January, February, March, April, basically the entire year down. Nope, here comes Dave, Dave uh, what, what's his name? Uh, Mr. Mr. Lee, I think it was. Not, I don't think it was Dave. What's his name? I don't know. The guy, uh, there's a bull they always have on. And he's just, he's bullish no matter what the market is. Like, I never hear a bearish word out of his, out of his talk. Uh, or, or out, of, out of what he says. Uh, and then you have so many institutions that are always like, oh, oh, oh tech's over, that's it, tech's trash. And I'm just like, I, I, I don't know what you're seeing. I mean, the valuations on, on some of these tech companies have gotten so delicious uh, relative to their historical norms. Meanwhile, you people are still buying uh, consumer staples, which I think are gonna get wrecked. Hey, maybe maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I am, but at least I put my opinion out there. I mean, I, like I've said many times before, bearish consumer staples, bearish real estate right now. But there's so many opportunities, I think, in, uh, in in tech, specifically staying away from obviously negative free cash flowing, because I do think there are real recessionary risks. I'm actually preferring the hardware space within tech, uh, whether that's um, whether that's EVs, energy, or uh, or, or uh, chip making. I think uh, that's uh, these these are future plays that that are so critically important. But anyway, 
Whatever, my, my, Tom Lee, that's what it is. Tom Lee, exactly, yes. Oh my gosh, it, it, like Neil Stadt or something like that. That guy's always on there uh, 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 talking about how everything's perfect. And I'm like, oh, let's, let's look at this. Can we, can we spend a, I, you know what? I have a challenge for him. I have a challenge for Tom Lee. Tom Lee, if you're watching this, which you probably aren't because you're only reading the bull thesis, um, I'm a challenge. Next time you go on CNBC, Say one thing the Bears have right, and how they potentially could be right. Try it. It'll be very interesting. Of course, then maybe who knows? Maybe because then then you know you flip flopped, uh, uh, or or people might say you flip flopped. Uh, maybe CNBC won't invite you back. So I suppose that's that's also a risk. But anyway, uh, all right. So uh, yeah, yeah. I, I still struggle with that. Dying on a hill for the sake of ego. You know, actually, a lot of entrepreneurs suffer from that. Uh, you know, for example, I'll give you an example. So I had this attorney who, who had an opinion that we should do something one way. And uh, I thought that one way was too aggressive. I didn't think it was necessary. So I told that attorney why I thought their, uh, their move was a little too aggressive. And I kind of opened the door and, and gave them the opportunity to, to kind of like take the L on that one because I'm the client and ultimately I decide. And, uh, it, it, and in this case, I, I think my strategy is, is playing out substantially better. And unfortunately, and, and you get this with entrepreneurs regularly, it, it's almost like every follow-up message now is, is, is why they believe their, their original thesis is correct. I see that with agents as well. Like an agent poo-poo's a house so much that when the client turns around and says, well, but I really like the house. Now the agent just every turn has to find a reason to support their original thesis. People get really stuck in this and in, in how hard it is to maybe see the other side. And, and I think there's too much of an ego to like, okay, let's do that strategy. Let's work together on mastering that strategy, right? Like I'm a big fan of that. I, I don't think like somebody's trying to keep score about how, oh, you originally said you were right. Therefore, you can't change your opinion, right? Uh, like you don't have to be so stuck in that, that one range. So I like that idea or, or that phrase of, you know, people sort of die on the hill of things that like aren't worth fighting for sometimes. But it's very, very common on uh, in, uh, for, for entrepreneurs, for business owners, real estate agents, attorneys, uh, very, very common. And I think the best thing, people, even employees, I think the best thing you could do is, is be fluid, give your opinion, but also be open to going the other direction. Because the more you try to dig yourself in, the, the more difficult it is to, to work with you. Uh, you know, because even if somebody's going in a different direction, that ends up being wrong. We're supposed to be a team, right? Uh, it's kind of like the, uh, just to maybe try a, a sports analogy. It's kind of like, hey, you know, you think uh, play XYZ is the best move. And uh, the, the football coach says, no, we're doing play ABC. And you're like, man, but I really think XYZ is going to be better here. What are you going to like? get up off the line and kind of like, yeah, you're not doing my play. I'll just stand over here. Like, well, then you're fired, <laughs> you know? Uh, like, you no, know, you get in there and, and even if that's not what you think is the best strategy, you, you, put, you put everything in that strategy that's chosen with the team. And I think that's, uh, that's really important in, uh, in team building. But I think that self-awareness uh, self is super important. Uh, and, uh, and and being open and receptive to, to the other side's arguments. That's what I try to do on the channel here, right? As as we we look at, uh, you know, okay, what what are the theses that are that are uh, opposite of me, right? Uh, I think that's the most important thing to pay attention to. Okay, so uh, that um, uh, that's uh, that's sort of we'll call that the rant. 
CNBC and The Rant. Dying on the Hill Rant. Okay, now we've got to touch on comedians getting canceled. We got to talk about comedians getting canceled and SNL, the mainstream media. This is disgusting. Apparently now you've got the comedian who writes the Dilbert comics getting canceled because of some racist comments that he made according to the mainstream media. And let's take a look at some of the mainstream media's bashing that's going on. And it, look, I just want to provide you a little bit of backdrop before we get started in that. When I ran for governor in California, I learned firsthand, and I came in second place of retail, recall candidates, excuse me. Uh, I won San Francisco, which is, that's awesome. Like, anyone in San Francisco who voted for me, anyone who voted for me in general, thank you. Y'all are amazing. We almost a million uh, votes in Cali, which is fantastic. But what, what I want to mention is one of the massive things that I learned was actually about the media. And I didn't learn about that media aspect directly uh, uh, from, from my assumptions, I was told it. After my uh, uh, election campaign failed, I met with individual reporters who reached out to me, who wanted to sit down with coffee privately off record with me, who work at news stations and TV stations and radio stations and, and paper organizations in our state. And they're like, Kevin, you've got to know the media is not what you think it is. And I'm like, what do you mean? And very clearly, and I'm going to uh, uh, simplify here. The media is directed by profit. And if, let's say, the governor has 10 events scheduled over the next two months, and we send a reporter to cover you, and the governor catches wind of that because you're trying to dethrone the governor, the governor could say, hey, we're not going to allow your media organization into our next 10 press events because you're covering Meet Kevin. That literally happened. Not only that, and not only does that kind of rigging happen in politics and media, but I'm told from reporters that they could be reading off a teleprompter knowing that something is a lie, knowing it's a lie, and still have to read it, otherwise they're fired. That is the mainstream media for you. Now we're going to talk about cancel culture in the mainstream media in just a moment in terms of what's happening, but it's disgusting. And, and look, I feel like in the past, I, I used to be way too trusting of, of the mainstream media. I think that's what we're taught, you know, and, and you get a, I hate to use this word, but you get a liberal education at a college or, or, or you know, even our high schools. I mean, that's what, what you're getting these days. You know, it's Keynesian economic thought. You don't even get taught Austrian economics. You don't really get taught the other perspective. It's, oh no, it's the New York Times. It's the Wall Street Journal. It's, it's, it's only the mainstream media, right? So, so what ends up happening? Is, uh, is is you start kind of cracking that thought by realizing, oh my gosh, like it, it, you, you might not be getting coverage because there's a profit motive. Uh, and it's like a lot of people are going to hear that and, and be like, well, duh. But that it would extend to the extreme of uh, media reporters lying to your face. It's kind of shocking. But then again, we've even seen that happening with Tucker Carlson. You've got uh, uh, lawsuits that are now revealing that people like Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, and Sean Hannity knew the election likely was not rigged, but they were still peddling that narrative because that's what their audience essentially wanted to hear. That was sort of the, the clickbait of the day. And they're being compelled by 
the, the corporate directive to cover stories a certain way to either whether it's create divisiveness or, or whatever. Uh, and that's the same thing that I experienced uh, in, in my campaign for governor. And, it, and it's just, it's uh, shocking and it's disheartening. But unfortunately, now you're getting a lot of that similar uh, style of, of, of censorship in, in how the media is reacting. Uh, so first of all, here we have the, uh, uh, you know, the, the opening to the SNL skit. Uh, obviously, we've covered this before, but the opening to the SNL skit was basically, hey, you know, let's, let's make fun of COVID and Big Pharma. And uh, some of the reaction to that was fascinating. Let me quickly remind you what that sounded like. Let's go ahead and give this a little play here. Okay, so the movie goes like this. The biggest drug cartels in the world get together and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes and people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. I threw the script away. I mean, who is going to believe that crazy idea? All right, so that's that's sort of our uh, our, our intro to SNL here. Uh, and these are, you know, I go through, I've got a section over here where you can go through my likes on Twitter and you can see what I like, whether or not I actually like it or whatever, but it's just a way for you to uh, kind of see what I'm paying attention to if you want uh, on Twitter. And this is very interesting. Woody Harrelson, the biggest drug cartels in the world, get together and buy up all the media. And then look at this. Rolling Stone, Woody Harrelson spreads anti-vax conspiracies during SNL monologue. I think at this point, a lot of us are looking and going, man, you know, more and more data's coming out saying that booster may not be very effective, whether that's biologically because of the effects of known as priming, whether that's because of, uh, of, of how quickly uh, COVID is evolving, whether it's the fact that uh, COVID is, is uh, a type of human coronavirus, which it, uh, the common cold is caused by four types of coronaviruses. And interestingly, studies are showing that if you've had a cold briefly before COVID exposure, you might actually be resistant to COVID because you've had a common cold exposure, right? So th there's this, this this idea that something is anti-vax is basically like trying to say, oh, you're some extremist alt-right winger uh, who who you know is is dumb and an idiot. And I think now uh, the world is waking up to you know maybe I don't need to take the next booster. Maybe maybe we had something that isn't that great. Maybe myocarditis because of the the, the proteins that are, are uh, you know, floating around in our bloodstream and causing inflammation of, of the heart muscles, maybe maybe that's not a good thing for younger people, especially younger males, to have, uh, you know, for weeks in their systems after potentially uh, potentially a, a booster or, or the original vaccine leading to the potential sudden death of, of a higher level of uh, younger Americans than previously. We've got there multiple results out showing that more younger males in their 20s are suffering from myocarditis or heart-related conditions after the pandemic than before the pandemic. Mainstream media tries in some ways to spin that narrative as, oh, well, that's because they had COVID as opposed to having the vaccine. But hey, you know, there's always going to be spin. But anyway, I mean, look at this. Woody Harrelson getting derailed as basically being an anti-vax in Variety, Daily Beast, Rolling Stone, Huffington Post. But it's not just him. It's not just him. It's, it's this over here. Watch this. So uh, here you've got this, this poll that was put together by, uh, where is it? Here we go. Rasmussen Reports puts together this poll. And this poll that gets put together is, it's okay to be white. 
72% of Americans agree, 12% disagree, 69% of Democrats agree. Uh, and, then, and then it goes on to black people can be racist too. 79% of Americans agree, so on and so forth. So basically it's, it's this, this poll is being conducted that, that is, is, is in some ways trying to uh, evoke, uh, dare I say, uh, emotion, right? Now, I think they actually do a pretty decent job of explaining why they're conducting polls the way they are. Uh, I'll go ahead and play that for a moment because it, it is quite enlightening. Uh, let's grab this for a moment here and listen into some of their commentary here. And then we'll get into the comedian who's now being canceled by cancel culture. Actually, the comedian uh, who uh, creates the column Dilbert or, or the, the uh, skit Dilbert is uh, basically being dropped from newspapers for being called a racist for some of the comments he made. And I'll play those comments in just a moment. But, but listen in here to a moment about what they say about some of their polls. Since the 2020 election, we've increasingly heard the sentiment that people have lost faith in polling. But let me explain our role at Rasmussen Reports and prove to you why now more than ever, you need us to exist. We tell you what America really thinks. And I can tell you that increasingly the reality of American public opinion does not match what you're being told in the news at schools or colleges by corporations and by your public officials. Follow the links to our two biggest polls of the year, which I'll put in the YouTube description, for an example about how we changed the narrative by proving COVID vaccinated Americans are suffering from major side effects and how nearly half the country is concerned the vaccines are causing a significant number of unexplained deaths. Why do we now I'm going to hop around a little bit. So you can see he, he's making this argument that, hey, like, look, we're trying, we're doing, even though people don't trust polls that much anymore, we're trying to do polls on, on uh, things that might be deemed a little more sensitive to try to figure out, do people believe what the mainstream media is telling them? Like, is the narrative of the mainstream media actually aligning with what people believe? And take a look at this. Here's a poll that shows, do you agree or disagree? It's okay to be white. And you add these up, you've got about 70% somewhat or strongly agree. Okay, fine. Let's go to some of these, uh, these other polls here. And then we'll, I'll go ahead and also show you the uh, comedian uh, who got canceled and some of the things that he's saying. So you can see some of the polls here. You can watch uh, their, their full breakdown, but let's move over. Black people can be racist as well. You can see uh, sort of the breakdown you've got over here. And it's these polls that spawned uh, the... the uh, response from a comedian in, in the live streams that he does sort of on, on topics that he likes to cover. And I would like to show you his response because he is suffering from cancel culture now. In fact, uh, he particularly gets canceled because in his show called Real Coffee with Scott Adams, he talks about this poll. And by talking about this poll, uh, he ends up getting canceled uh, in some of the comments he makes by the USA Today Network, which includes, I mean, dozens of different uh, uh, um, uh, newspapers such as the Arizona Republic, the St. Augustine Record, a Courier Journal, Austin American Statesman, hundreds more, Washington Post, LA Times, San Antonio Express, Philadelphia Inquirer, Chicago Tribune, Cleveland Plain Dealer. All of these uh, apparently have dropped Scott Adams because of some of his comments. Uh, he thinks he's essentially being fully canceled. And some of the VPs of content, for example, a VP of content over at Michigan's MLive Media says, the group has zero tolerance for racism and we're certainly not going to spend our money supporting purveyors of it. Uh, and so really, you've got a poll and then now you have a comedian who's talking about that poll and making some commentary on it. Uh, it's some of it in, in a way to sort of evoke emotion 
to provide his solutions. And I think his solutions are interesting and worth talking about, but these are the segments that got him canceled. But I want you to see what you think about, and I want to hear from you in the comments, what you think about some of the solutions that he proposes. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and, and uh, jump into this here. So let me see here. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, okay, so... Uh, ba, 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 ba. And when, uh, let me let me clarify. When I say comedian, I should be saying cartoonist. I think that's that's the more appropriate and uh, applicable uh, phrase. All right, here we go. Provocative little poll today. They said, uh, "Do you agree or disagree with the statement? Uh, it's okay to be white." That was an actual question. Rasmussen asked, you know, white and black voters. And, and probably others. Uh, do you disagree or agree with the statement, it's okay to be white? 26% of blacks said uh, no. It's not okay to be white. 21% weren't sure. Add them together, that is 47% of black respondents were not willing to say it's okay to be white. That, that actually, that's like a real poll. This just happened. Uh, did you have any idea? <laughs> would, would you have imagined that that could have happened? So I realized, um, as you know, I've been identifying as black for a while, years now, because I, like, you know, I like to be on the winning team. And I like to help. And I, I always thought, well, if you help the black community, that's sort of the biggest lever. You know, you, could, you can find the, the biggest benefit. So I thought, well, that's the hardest thing and the biggest benefit. So I'd like to focus a lot of my life resources in helping black Americans. So much so that I started identifying as black to just be on the team I was helping. But it turns out that nearly half of that team uh, doesn't think uh, I'm okay to be white which is, of course, why I identified as black, because so I could be on the winning team for a while. But I have to say, uh, th this is the first political poll that ever changed my activities. I don't know that that's ever happened before. You know, normally you see a poll, you just look at it, and you go, ah, whatever. <laughs> you know, oh, this is interesting what other people think. But as of today, I'm going to re-identify as white, because I don't want to be a member of a hate group. I'd accidentally joined a hate group. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. All right, so there's the segment that basically got him canceled. Uh, and uh, what's actually interesting is uh, the opinion on, on that aside, I want you to hear some of his ideas. He actually gives five ways that you could ex uh, succeed in life. So obviously, you know, if you're listening to this on, on uh, Spotify or podcasts or whatever, this is a white dude talking about how he's identifying as black because he wants to be part of the minority group and, and help them out and wants to be part of the winning team because he's making the argument that, hey, like, if mainstream media is just propping up black people, then I just want to identify as black so I can be part of the winning team. That's basically the argument he's making. But now, because he realizes, in his opinion, he and I think he's being facetious here, uh, he's, he's part of a hate group because nearly half of blacks 
don't think it's okay to be white. Now he wants to re-identify as white, right? Okay, so so that's, if you're listening to some podcast, that's basically his, his summary here. But there are two clips that I want to show, uh, actually a few clips uh, that I want to show you here, uh, because he actually provides some solutions uh, on, 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 you know, basically getting ahead. So I'm going to play about maybe two, two minutes of clips here, and, and we'll add some commentary on this. But I think they're very interesting, especially the uh, second clip I show will be uh, five ways or, or five things, five at minimum things you need to do to succeed in life. But that'll come up in just a moment. Let's start here. The, the system allows that. If they don't, I can't make that my problem anymore. Well, hold on. This is uh, their priority on education. Here's my take on all of it. Everybody who focuses uh, their priority on education does well. If, If anybody in the black community focuses on education, they'll do well as well because the the system allows that. So he's making the argument here that, hey, look, if if you're black and you want to get ahead, focus on education. That's his argument. Uh, Now, he has some more clips on this. Now, what I'd like to do is just quickly jump in and say it's worth remembering about the Harvard-studied concept known as the concentration of poverty. Uh, Poor people are twice as likely to be a a minority, black, Hispanic. Unfortunately, poor people uh, tend to continue to get poor. That's because of capitalism, large in part. It's usually richer people who continue to get richer. People with assets like businesses, real estate, stocks, they build wealth, they become millionaires, they get richer. The poor and the laboring class stay poor. There's a reason when I teach the zero to millionaire real estate investing uh, course, I teach you how to go from having no money to getting into real estate because I know that is your most likely way of becoming a millionaire, right? Those are my programs on building your wealth down below with the flash sale uh, that expires this week. Link down below, whether it's stocks, the psychology of money, real estate, zero to millionaire, entrepreneur via uh, the elite hustlers group, whatever. But let's jump on over to what uh, Scott Adams says here because he gives five suggestions that you should follow if you want to succeed. So this is another video of his. Let's go ahead and jump into this moment here about 37 minutes in. Right. And I think that's not that uncommon. But here's, here's the punchline. They were complaining about my point of view that you should get away from uh, black people. Now remember that was in context. If you hear it out of context, the sentence completely different. But they had done the same thing. They had moved away from black people to live with white people. That was my point. So the very thing that they did to organize their life was exactly what I recommend. It wouldn't matter if you're white or black. You should get away from concentrations of inner city, you know, terrible schools and whatever culture is not working. Now, and remember, that's not necessarily possible for poorer people. It's very easy to say, Move out of the poor area. Stop being poor. But it's difficult if you don't have any money. I don't know why it's not working. I think systemic racism is you know, the base reason. Then here's the other thing that is uh, why the response to me is not as big as you might expect. Did you think there would be more pushback to what I said? It's fast forward. Here, they is all white people. You know, I'm not talking about black people. Whoever succeeded 
did Here it the go. same way. Five things. That, that's like, that's the most dangerous message in America. Everyone who ever succeeded did it the same way. Five things you got to get right. Number one, stay out of jail. Number two, don't be addicted to alcohol or drugs. Number three, don't start a family too young before you're ready. Right? And if you do, stay married. Number four, make education or training, you know, any, any form of learning, your top priority through life. Number five, show some character. And that would include everything from showing up on time to you know, being a good person, etc. Honest integrity in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think those are obviously uh, very clear sort of bare minimums. I will say my parents divorced when I was six and a divorce is probably the most financially ruining thing you could go through. So like, yes, be very careful uh, about a divorce. And uh, also uh, uh, education or, or training as a top priority, really wanna highlight that. Uh, you know, again, that's why I made programs on building your wealth is because I, I personally believe you wanna go through your life and try to learn something new every day, optimize something every day, get a new perspective, expose yourself to something because that's how you become a better, more well-rounded entrepreneur, employee, boss, manager, whatever. Uh, and you can couple that with something else that Scott Adams says. And then I wanna ask you, does it make sense for him to be canceled? But let's go ahead and listen in here. Trying to achieve equity. Do you know what always works? The people who work the hardest and have the most merit get more. There's never been an exception to that, is there? That merit always works and trying to make everything equal is guaranteed to fail. It can't possibly work. It doesn't even have an option of working. <laughs> a lot of things you say, well, you know, I think it's more likely it won't work than it will, but chasing equity couldn't possibly work. So basically saying, look, what's guaranteed to fail? Well, communism, trying to guarantee the same outcome for everyone, that's guaranteed to fail. You know what generally doesn't fail? Hard work and merit. He's not wrong. The, there's, there's a reason there's a saying, and I believe in this so much. The harder I work, the luckier I get. There could be crappy times in your life, and I'll tell you, people have gone through way worse things than, than I've gone through. You know, I'm not here to pity party, uh, uh, you know, certainly myself, certainly not myself. But like, and knock on wood, I don't want anybody to go through bad circumstances. But that one line, at least in my life, has always reigned true. The harder I work, the luckier I get. And, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, Scott Adams is right on for, for what he's saying here. So now you've seen all of the arguments that he's made. Does it make sense for him to be canceled? Is Scott Adams a racist uh, suggesting that uh, anyone who is black is part of a hate group? Or was that sort of a sensationalized, sarcastic argument to lead into the message of, hey, we've got to focus on things like education, reducing crime, reducing uh, addiction, focusing on hard work and merit rather than uh, equal results for all. I'll leave that to you to decide. I think my opinion's pretty clear. I personally stand on the side of hard work, merit, everybody's got different advantages, privileges, disadvantages, but the harder we work, 
no matter what we look like or who we are or whatever, the harder we work generally, the luckier we get. Of course, we'll start at different levels. The race does not start at the same place, unfortunately. But that doesn't mean you still can't run. Unless, of course, you're disabled. But then I suppose that's very unfortunate and we'll have to have a different conversation for that. And that's an analogy anyway. But anyway, let me know what your thoughts are on that one in the comments. All right, so that gives us a little bit into uh, uh, cancel culture, unfortunately. Now, we still got multiple topics to cover here, so I'm going to speed this up a little bit here. We do have uh, NASDAQ futures green right now. It looks like we're up about 1% on the NASDAQ futures. Tesla's up about 2.8%. You've got Etsy up about 1.7%. Uh, we did get some pretty solid durables uh, figures that, uh, that are supporting some uh, economic revival here. Let's go ahead and take a look at what these figures are here. Um, hold on a second here. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So, um, I guess I'll, I'll just sort of give like a quick summary on it, but, uh, uh, the, the, we'll, we'll call it the, uh, uh, why bullish today segment. All right. Ready? And here we go. Well, so why are markets going bullish this morning? Well, it's because we got durable goods data. It's like, well, what's so exciting about that? Well, potentially avoiding a recession. See, there are a few trains of thought leading to the support of the bear argument. Number one is that Jerome Powell is going to turn into Paul Volcker. We're all screwed because we're going into a deep, dark depression. I think most people listening to this don't necessarily lean on that argument. I don't think the bears are that extreme. Although, of course, that is a tail risk, you know, like a, you know, 5% risk that something like that happens. Whatever percent risk you think, it's probably on the smaller end anyway. I think most of the people who are bearish right now, whether you're in cash, you're like Steve and you love commodities, uh, you know, you just want to rub those commodities. Um, the bear argument right now is very clearly that a recession is likely to hurt earnings per share substantially. And then once earnings per share are hurt, guess what? We go into a situation where we look at S&P 500 earnings. We look at the price to earnings multiples for indices, staples, stocks across the board. And we end up seeing, uh oh, wait a minute. This isn't actually priced into markets. That EPS could plummet. And if EPS plummets, well then our valuations are too high and basically we've got a giant leg down further. Well, the data that we just got called the Durables Good Orders data gives some signs of brightness, some signs. The year over year uh, figure here, actually, let me, uh, actually, oh, sorry. This is actually all month over month data. So this month over month data gives us uh, some uh, individualistic uh, data. And when we look at durable good orders overall, we see what looks like at first a decline uh, above expectation. So the expectation was negative 4% on durable goods data. We got negative 4.5%. And the prior data of 5.6 was revised down to 5.1. That seems bearish, right? But when we start taking out uh, no, uh, 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 the uh, aerospace sector and the transportation sector, and we then just look at things like maybe 
cars, washing machines, dishwashers, you know, other larger purchases for people uh, and, and durable goods. What we end up getting is something that looks a lot brighter. So last month, we were sitting at a negative 0.2% for durable goods, excluding transportation. That was actually revised lower to negative 0.4%, which isn't great, right? But the current report, so looking at, uh, at, at uh, uh, January, the last report being the December report, the January report shows durables excluding transportation were expected to rise 0.1%. They actually came in at 0.7%. And that supports the argument that maybe GDP will be propped up a little better than we expect, and maybe we can actually avoid a recession. And that's probably why stocks are moving up right now because of the expectation that, okay, look, yes, Paul Volcker is one of the arguments, but we want data that suggests things just aren't as bad as they are. Maybe because consumers and businesses have more access to capital, more access to debt. Maybe they're using more debt, although that's even started tapering down a little bit. Maybe they just have more cash and they can support still buying stuff. We go to the next line. We have capital good orders for the non-defensive sector, excluding aerospace. We were expecting no growth. What we got was 0.8%, which annualizes to about 9.6%. It's fantastic. Capital goods shipments for non-defenses, excluding aerospace. Uh, these, this is different from orders, this is now shipments, came in at 1.1% versus the goal, or the survey rather, of 0.2%. So you've got a nice beat here on orders, the likely explanation for uh, why we're seeing, uh, at least here in the early uh, uh, pre-market or with early pre-market data, the likely explanation for the rise in indices here is that this is anti-recessionary, right? Now, this doesn't give us too terribly much uh, inflationary data, but it gives us data that, hey, maybe things just aren't as bad as feared. Maybe the Fed isn't tightening as bad as feared. Consider this, right before the durable goods data, the 10-year treasury yield was knocking on the door of 3.98%. Within 30 minutes after the release of the durable goods data, the 10-year treasury yield fell to 3.91%. So that means we were at about, you know, we were rising on the day and we basically fully U-turned on the 10-year treasury yield. Maybe because markets are saying, oh, okay, well, these durable good orders are great because they suggest that negative GDP level isn't near just yet. People are still able to spend through it. So that gives us some insight into why we're seeing some of these indices move. Right now, Dow, S&P, NASDAQ futures positive, oil moving down again. Remember, there was this massive thesis and I've been pounding on the table going, it's bullshit. I've been pounding on the table saying oil's not going to $100. People are like, but Kevin, China's going to reopen. It's going to go to 100. It's going to go to 100. And I'm like, it ain't going to 100. I think if you look back at my videos over the last three months, I'm like, this is nonsense. China was reopened for three, you know, for, for like 40 years before the pandemic. And we didn't have massive oil spikes that, that weren't, you know, uh, predicated on the disasters that we had uh, elsewhere outside of China. Anyway, a lot of other data suggesting as well that this was just a, a, a Wall Street institutional trade gone wrong. But anyway, Brent sitting down now about half percent, only at 82 bucks. That'll probably be trending towards the 70s here soon, especially as uh, traders continue to unwind their oil positions, realizing that, oh crap, oil's not actually going in the direction they thought. Uh, WTI sitting at the lowest level that we've seen 
basically since even before the invasion into Ukraine by Russia. Now that is remarkable. Right now sitting at 75.84 is a level that we last saw in December of 2021. That's that's when when the uh, when, when the uh, uh, you know war uh, the invasion of Russia into Ukraine what wasn't even really a topic that was being covered it was it was a fringe thought a fringe idea it was Western media hysteria back then you know, it wasn't until January we actually started seeing fears of the war actually occurring when when oil started rising. This idea of it heading back to 100 bucks so far has been a faltering trade, uh, and it's, it's one that we saw the writing on the wall for. So uh, great job, though, on the durable goods data. We'll, we'll see how the market ends up playing out uh, on the day. Uh, but that's uh, that's some of the movement you're seeing. A lot of folks asking me, by the way, hey, like, you know, what about oil companies as maybe uh, green tech investments? Just look at the earnings calls. Any Most of the green tech investments that the big oil companies are making are profit-losing endeavors that, in my opinion, are just being made for the political appearance of, oh, yeah, we're an oil company, but don't worry, we love ESG, you know, environmental and social governments, right? Anywho, uh, look, I, I think the important thing to look at in the market is very, very clear. It's, are you betting on Paul Volcker coming? Uh, then you're all cash. If you're not betting on Paul Volcker coming, then you want to invest in companies, in my opinion, that have strong pricing power. Not personalized financial advice for you, uh, even though I am a licensed financial advisor. It's not personalized financial advice for you. Uh, you want to look at pricing power stocks. Where are companies that are going to be able to maintain margin even through a potential recession? But so far, even the idea of a recession continues to get sort of kicked down the road more and more and more and more. All right, so that gives us durables and green, 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 green today. So next up, we need to talk about the rental collapse. Bah, 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 bah. All right, yeah, this will be an interesting one. This is 10 seconds. Well, it's official. Rents are starting to collapse. This is what we've been waiting for, and it is still a lagging uh, result that we are looking for to show up in inflationary data to show us that the disinflation we're looking for in housing and housing related services is finally here. But folks, it's finally happening. We are now on a six month trend of rents falling for apartments. And now this story, you might think, hey, well, that seems relatively basic, right? Mm, there's more to it. Because our buddy, the mouthpiece of the Federal Reserve, Nick T, retweeted exactly the same story. Uh, fortunately, I saw it before he tweeted it, but I mentioned, not that that really matters, I'm just being petty, but the reason I mentioned that Nick T retweeted this is because, remember, if Nick T is the mouthpiece of the Fed and Nick T retweets something, that means either the Fed is seeing him do it or the Fed told him to do it. We don't know, but we do know he's the guy who gets texts from the Fed trying to shape the media narrative. You think the media is rigged, should see how the Fed manipulates what's going on in the media. And it's fascinating. But in some way, they are trying to set expectations and communicate more clearly to the public. And they're doing that in all ways that they can. So whether it's manipulation or it's just the way the game is played, why did Nick T 
Retweet. Well, he tweeted this piece from the Wall Street Journal. Apartment rents fell in every major metropolitan area in the United States over the past six months through January. Renters with new leases paid a median rent that was 3.5% lower than they would have paid last August. Now, 3.5% doesn't seem like that much, but it's the beginning of a trend. And trend analysis is extremely important in real estate. It's very much just like the uh, people who are buying real estate going, oh, well, real estate is still up so much. Yeah, sure. We might be over here in January comparing to January data that's over here from 2022 and we're in 2023 and we're like, oh, look, real estate's still up 1%. There's no real estate crash. Okay, well, maybe pay attention to the trend that we're on because the trend just doesn't look that good. And once we lap, what do you think things are going to look like when all of a sudden we're over here with real estate, <coughs> we're in May and we're comparing to May up here. Uh-oh, that real estate trend's not going to look that great. But what is this, ar this article say. It was written by Will Parker. Worth noting that. It's not actually Nick T who's just retweeting his own piece. Renters with new leases in January paid a median rent 3.5% lower than they would have paid last August. According to estimates from Apartment List, it was the first time in five years that rent fell every month over a six-month period. First time in, six, in five years. Four other market measures by housing data companies also show that new lease rents either fell or remained flat in January compared to the previous month. Again, this is that, that inflection point that we've been seeing over the last six months. The softening rental market follows an unprecedented run for apartment and home rental industry, uh, the home rental industry, put in motion by the pandemic. Pent-up demand for housing exploded in the, in the months after the introduction of COVID-19 vaccines in late 2020, and a surge in people searching for apartments lifted rents 25% over two years ago. So in other words, it's worth noting that, hey, even though rents are inflecting down, they're still way higher than they used to be, right? There's, there's, it's still expensive. Now, rent declines are a sign that many tenants have maxed out how much they're willing to pay towards rent. This is a sign of a lack of pricing power, right? And I'm starting to see this anecdotally as well. I'm purposefully traveling to, uh, uh, to areas like uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Scottsdale, Arizona, Mesa, Arizona, Vegas, Summerlin, North Las Vegas, Idaho, Provo, St. George, Utah, uh, uh, Colorado, you name it. I'm purposefully traveling to these areas and I'm paying attention to what's happening with rents. And I'm starting to see more and more rental property concessions on single family homes, which we didn't see just two months ago. So you're actually starting to see what could be, at least anecdotally, an acceleration of rent declines. And it's very important that if you're looking at real estate, that we want to see a bottoming process really solidify first before getting into, you know, wedge deals or whatever, because we, we, we don't want to be caught holding a bag, right? And so this is very important to pay attention to this data. So what do we have over here? While some seasonal stalling in rents is normal, the market faces a significant headwind thanks to the delivery of new supply and the biggest delivery of new supply since 1986, according to CoStar and LoopNet. Nearly half a million new apartments are coming online this year as developers seek cash, or to seek cash or to cash in on the higher rents that they, we have now. But on top of this, this massive new supply, which by the way, 
I think is going to hit single families as well. Not only is that going to come around the same time that I expect to see some REIT liquidations, but you're also seeing a massive push to get new construction out the door. Uh, some of the biggest levels of new construction that we've seen, certainly since the Great Recession, by some measures all the way back to the 80s. So massive new amounts of inventory coming. Uh, but uh, all of that is likely to drive down and not only prices, but also rents. And when rents come down, you create a price spiral that's negative. Rents go down, it's more desirable to rent, so you have less buyers. If you have more supply at the same time as you have less buyers and higher rates, prices come down. When prices come down for rents because there's more supply, you accelerate prices coming down uh, for, for housing because, again, it makes less sense to buy versus renting especially since household formation is also falling. More individuals are choosing to live with friends or family or whatever, rather than move out and create their own household, leading to an acceleration in this pain. You can see that right here. Other would-be renters living with, uh, with friends or family remain sidelined by prices that are far too high. And you're seeing more of a consolidation of households as well. During the pandemic, we went through this massive expansion of household formation, even though our, our population wasn't growing at those sorts of levels, and certainly you wouldn't expect to see something happen that quickly. During the COVID pandemic, what you had was a lot of people who moved out on their own into their own apartments or houses because they, they were now able to, thanks to the work from home culture. Now it's actually becoming very difficult to work from home or get a work from home job. And so more people are choosing not to form households. If anything, they're consolidating households. You're seeing more people go from living on their own to moving back in with friends or family or house hacking or whatever. And so that's actually now leading to an increase in the availability of supply as well as there are more rentals available. Again, more rentals available from the existing housing stock combined with new housing stock creating a problem. It's why you're seeing this become more of a statistical certainty right now that not only are rents declining, which is fantastic for the disinflationary narrative, uh, and it's great news for the Federal Reserve, but it's also important uh, because, uh, you know, we, we, we want to see some stability in the market. And so far, things are way too bubbly. There's a reason why Jerome Powell said it's better to wait for a real estate reset than buy right now. Uh, and they reiterate, re reiterated that thesis in their minutes about the valuation pressures on real estate uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, but anyway, uh, that was uh, February 1st at their FOMC me meeting, which uh, those minutes were released last week. But anyway, what do we have here? Landlords are starting to, well, are likely to start dropping their renewal rents to prevent tenants from leaving. Renters are facing a lot more options. Uh, measured annually, rent growth remains positive, but the pace of growth is decelerating. That's the uh, inflection point. CPI is still showing that shelter costs up 7.9%, but, uh, but, but that heavily skews more towards leases that might be in the middle of their leases and not new leases that are being signed. And that sort of explains some of why we see this high annual price growth than uh, on CPI for rents than what's actually really happening. And the Fed is acutely aware of this. Uh, and it's one of the reasons they haven't been more hawkish is because they see that disinflation uh, happening. Seattle rents have tumbled 8% while rents in Boston and Las Vegas have fallen 6%, according to apartment lists. Notably, none of the 52 metro areas tracked by the company saw positive rent growth over the period. So nobody is still raising rent over the last six months. That's over. Uh, instead, we have the largest decreases that we've seen in five years, the largest supply coming online that we've seen in over 40 
uh, years. Uh, actually, more like 35 years, 33 years. Uh, maybe, no, whatever. Since 1986. Uh, and, uh, if, and and the real pain of of rents and prices was probably not going to be felt until at least this summer. Now, keep in mind, 10-year Treasury is sitting at 3.9%. Make your mortgage rate sit somewhere around 7%, substantially higher than that bump we saw in January uh, and December, where mortgage rates were down under 6%, thanks to 10-year Treasury yields falling under 3.4%. So you want to pay attention to those 10-year Treasury yields. Right now, again, sitting at about 392 the more we sit over here, the more pains expected for real estate. And when we get to those year-over-year -year numbers and we actually start seeing negativity and pain, oh boy, you're probably looking at oopsie-doopsies uh, and uh, max pain somewhere around the uh, May to July, August period for the real estate market. Unless, of course, inflation reignites and then we're looking at more pain for everything. But in terms of max pain, on a disinflationary path, probably looking at somewhere around that May to July area. So if you're looking to get started in real estate, it's probably time to start getting educated now, which is why I've got a program on building your wealth through, through real estate. It's the Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing Course. We have a flash sale going on this week. In honor of Tesla's Investor Day, you could join any of the programs linked down below, get lifetime access. We've got some trades getting posted, uh, likely this morning here for uh, a bet that I'm making on uh, some farming over the next two weeks. So I'm excited about that. Stay tuned for those. Uh, we've got some trades identified. And folks, uh, yeah, that, that uh, gives us some insight into the uh, rental collapse. So good luck out there. But it, uh, that sounds, uh, sounds quite optimistic. Okay, now we've got to cover some more bear news. Dun, dun, dun. Stand by. Kev, how bad will the gig worker economy get? I mean, it sounds like the supply for gig workers is exploding, so the incomes are falling. So it, it probably still has time time to go, sadly. Rip to homeowners whose three-year fixed rate term is coming due. Well, uh, yep. Uh, okay, let's jump into some bear arguments here. Seven seconds. We got to cover the bear case because that's what we do here. We cover the bull case. We cover the bear case. I give you my opinions. You're supposed to form your own. Yes, I run an actively managed ETF. Yes, I'm a licensed financial advisor. Yes, I have a real estate uh, startup. And yes, I get made fun of for flying around in a private jet, but that's because they don't have a private jet. Now, we need to talk about the bear case because that's very important. So what are we getting from the bears? Well, we're getting a few different things. Number one, <coughs> Morgan Stanley, our favorite bear of all, Mr. Mike Wilson. Dun, 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 dun. What does Mike Wilson have for the bear case today? What's the bear hopium? If you're short selling, what's the cocaine bear that you can sniff on today? Because we just got to get some more bad news. Even though I don't necessarily believe in the bad news, I'm going to pay attention to it because I always give credence to people of different perspectives. Let's listen to Mike Wilson. Although this bear market has been mostly about inflation and the Fed's reaction to it and higher interest rates, the depth and length of most bear markets are determined by the trend in forward earnings. On that score, the next 12 months of earnings per share estimates have started to flatten out, which has provided some investor optimism. Ooh, a flattening of forecasts of earnings? That sounds good, right? Uh-oh, wait, don't, not so fast. During bear markets, next 12-month earnings per, uh, per share estimates 
typically flatten out between quarterly earnings seasons before resuming their downtrend. Ah, oh, well that sucks if you're a bull, and that's great if you're a bear. In fact, take a look at this, and I have to give them some credit. This chart, probably the scariest chart that I've seen in terms of shorter term trading, and who knows, maybe this year will just echo what we saw last year. But take a look at what we got over here. Pattern of last year suggests March is a high risk month for stocks to discount the next round of cuts. Bum, bum, bum. Okay, so what does he show us? Well, take a look at this. The blue line here is the S&P 500. The yellow line shows you the discounting of the next 12 months of earnings. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take an, I'm going to make this a little simpler for us, okay? I'm going to take a green highlighter and I'm going to show you where the next 12 month earnings get cut. Okay, ready for that? Here we go. That would be about, uh, looks like last year, somewhere around between June and July. Over here, we have somewhere between October, yeah, mostly October over here. You see those earnings getting cut. And then you see earnings projections getting cut over here, January and uh, February. Okay, so when does the stock market decline in anticipation of the green slopey dopey going down? When does the stock market start getting sad? Well, the stock market starts getting sad about a month before that. Look at that. Stocks discount the earnings season in the last month of the quarter. So you get this massive decline over here in the last month of, uh, of um, Q2 2022, massive decline over here in September, the last month of Q3. Uh, you get uh, the, this massive decline in the last month of the S&P 500 of Q4, which is December. So it looks like you have about a one month lead where what's been happening is earnings forecasts get cut and stocks sniff it out about a month earlier. And guess what? We're in March. Uh, well, we're about to be in March. We're two days away from March. Uh, maybe March is actually at high risk of this earnings decline again. Unfortunately, Mike Wilson is making an argument that this time is gonna sound just like 2022. It's actually a pretty decent bear argument. I have to say, when Mike Wilson started talking about how the market was basically running out of oxygen and it was kind of like we were climbing Mount Everest, I had a little bit of this opinion that the bears were running out of bearish things to say and reasons to complain about the market, that they were basically running dry and they had to start coming up with crazy things. You know, this is not that terribly crazy. It's certainly better than, and we'll look a little bit more at what Mike Wilson says, but it's certainly a little bit better than what Mr. Robobank over here has to say. So you've got another Mike. I don't know what it is with Mikes and Bears here, but this guy's basically saying, hey, um, the bull strategy right now is a kamikaze strategy. Listen to, listen to some of the jade, and you gotta give him credit. I mean, he's, he's right about to have this jade, all right? Listen to this. In 2021, inflation was not going to happen. Then it rose sharply, but it was called transitory. In 2022, inflation was not going to soar nor were rates going to rise. Then it did, and rates rose. In 2023, disinflation and a rates pause was coming, and then a rates pivot loomed. Yet yeah, then we got hot data in January, followed by uh, really bad PCE numbers, and all of a sudden nobody pricing in cuts anymore for 2023. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, you have to kind of give him credit for that jade. He's kind of right about that. And he's not wrong that you've got people like Larry Summers now calling for a 6% Fed funds rate. Really, the way to be bullish is to say, well, the market doesn't so much care about whether it's 5.4% on a Fed's fund rate, Fed funds rate or 6%. The market cares about not getting Paul Volkert, right? That's your bull argument that no, the disinflation will come. We don't so much have to worry about uh, uh, about any of this, this, whether we're ending at 5.4 or 6% or whatever. We just have to worry about getting Paul Volcker. But he does end up making the argument here, the idea that the Fed's going to pivot uh, looks like a kamikaze strategy, that the reality is we might end up having to price in a 6% Fed funds rate. Right now, we're only sitting at 5.4% price stamp. You've also got uh, more pain potentially coming from China and Russia. You've got to pay attention to the geopolitical risks of China arming Russia. All right, like the bears are trying to grab whatever bearish things they can. Some of the things, though, they're not terribly wrong about. Like, these are definitely bearish arguments that we should pay attention to. Mike Wilson goes on to say, hey, look, this this rally that we saw in, in January and February is a bull trap, and they think the technicals are going to be straight up wrong. Even though we broke the 200-day moving average, he thinks that is wrong. Take a look at his chart. He gives us a chart here somewhere. Here we go. Take a look at this. First, the Dow Industrials made its high on November 30th, but it's very close to taking out the December lows with Friday's close. And if the economy was about to reaccelerate, wouldn't this classic late cycle index be doing better? In other words, if things were going to go better, why is the Dow basically about to take out some of its lows uh, from, from December? Also, speculative stocks are starting to underperform again. And he's also right about this. A lot of companies that have reported earnings, like SaaS companies, Airbnb, whatever, have actually sold off after their earnings because companies or people maybe are taking profits or they're, they're hedging. Last week, I said Friday was going to be a really good tell. After the hot PCE data, was the market going to close red or green? Uh, and that would tell how much fear there actually is for inflation. If we closed green, nobody really cared about PCE. Well, we closed pretty dang well red, decently red on Friday. And so a suggestion that yeah, market still is worried about inflation here. Uh, and so maybe... Maybe the warnings that the kamikaze guy and Mike Wilson are giving are something we want to pay attention to. Now, again, they're not necessarily what I believe in. While I agree with them, Mike Wilson, I completely agree that valuations on the S&P 500 are ridiculous. I think it's stupid. I'm sorry, that probably offends a lot of people. But I think it's stupid to, to bet on just solely the S&P 500. I understand it's a diversification tool. But it, for me, for my personal strategy, this is not for you. My personal strategy, it has, it's way too overweight staples and sectors that I believe did very well in 22 that won't do well in 2023. But it's not just Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley or the Rabobank on. It's also Barclays. Barclays actually gives us some idea of how bad could things get. So they talk about us potentially having to reprice in more the hawkish Fed path. The valuations are still high. But look at some of the scenarios they give here. They talk about... In a soft landing scenario, we have a 4.5% upside, okay? That's the upside for the S&P 500 where we sit now. Just 4.5%. That's your upside. 4.5%. That's it, okay? Then the bear case, a normal recession, negative 18.6%. Yikes. On the shallow recession, negative 6.2%. So, Clearly, the bears are setting up, based on their data, for much more bearish likelihoods 
than bullish outlooks. Now, I like to be contrarian, and when I was super bearish, a lot of people were super bullish. It's when I sold my stocks in January of 2022. It's also why I sold all my real estate in Q, well, almost all my real estate, uh, like 85% of my real estate, over $20 million of real estate dumped. Uh, stuff I owned myself, not with partners or anything, just myself and my wife, uh, in in uh, in the first quarter of 2022. Now, yeah, sure, did I buy back into some uh, what I thought were recession-resistant tech and growth stocks uh, and pricing power stocks a little too early? Absolutely. Not suggesting I timed it perfectly on both ends. Absolutely not. My point is, I like to be contrarian. And boy, there's a lot of institutional bearishness right now. And I really think they're hedging for a Paul Volcker scenario. And even if interest rates go a little bit higher with the FOMC, personally, I don't see myself that terribly bearish. I think we're on the path of, of massive disinflation. It's just going to be a game of patience. Probably not going to hit as fast as we think. But things are going to be as bad as the bears are suggesting, suggesting maybe for the S&P 500 or staples. But for some of the pricing power stocks that have already had some of their pain in 2022, whether those are chips, energies, uh, uh, you know, automakers, certain automakers, obviously like uh, Tesla, Enphase, NVIDIA, Intel, uh, you know, TSM, ASML, uh, uh, Solar Edge. I don't think so. I don't believe so because I think these are industries that are benefiting from massive stimmy checks and from government bailouts, whether that's the Inflation Reduction Act or the CHIPS Act, or from the fact that they have low debt, unlike a lot of companies that are heavily indebted. In fact, I have a piece here on heavily indebtedness uh, that's worth noting. Here's JP Morgan talking about pricing power. You know me, I'm a big fan of PP, right? Big, big, big fan of pricing power. The costs of rates remaining higher for longer are not only demand destruction for housing, durable goods, discretionaries, but also lower margins eroding pricing power and higher interest rate costs. But look at this, jump on over to where the most debt seems to be. It seems to be if we look at the chart on the right side for debt maturity and refinancing risk, that's gonna be this column that I'm sort of highlighting there on the right side. You're looking at the highest sectors for debt and the companies that I choose have, have specifically a low, low debt. The worst sector right now, look at this, food and staples retailing, highest levels of debt. Now you do have technology and hardware equipment. This is gonna be like your, your, more like your Corsair, your Ford, your GM, very, very high levels of debt. Semiconductors, actually not that bad. Tesla, very, very low debt. Telecom, media and entertainment, low debt. The SaaS sector, not that bad either. Automobiles, components, retailing, not that bad. Transportation, not that bad. But it's really, again, staples and food and even household and personal products. These are the ones that are heavily, heavily indebted. So maybe sectors that we got to pay attention to. But anyway, this is the kind of research that I try to do on a daily basis uh, to provide as much insight and perspective uh, onto what's going on in our world. Uh, and look, the bears have an argument, but uh, that doesn't mean you necessarily have to align with them, but uh, it gives you an idea about uh, bearish sentiment and, uh, and and what's going on with, with the bears. Uh, I, I personally, I think, uh, you know, as Elijah here in the comments says, bears are a little too heavyweight on the staples and, uh, and, and certainly the broad-based uh, indices, although it even seems like they're bearish on the broad-based as well. So we'll see. So uh, that's sort of my thought on the bear case there. 
Now I gotta jump over to the course member live streams. Remember the course member live streams you get access, lifetime access to uh, those programs on building your wealth. Link down below, we got a flash sale going on right now. Would love to see you there. I'm gonna throw myself another cup of coffee and then we'll be going live in the course member live stream. Thank you so much. We'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.